the pie is growing bigger for everybody. But at the end of the day, big retail is going to succeed and big retail will probably be the chief benefactor of that era. Okay, so sitting around trying to predict the future can be a pretty fun challenge. But for Philip Jackson, the chief commerce officer at RightPoint and the co-founder of Future Commerce, there's no better way to spend a day or an hour on a podcast. On this episode of Up Next in Commerce, Philip and I went deep down the rabbit hole of all the crazy trends we're currently seeing in the e-commerce world and where we expect the industry to head next. From spotting innovation in the gaming community, building the e-commerce metaverse, or working with disruptor brands on high-risk, high-reward ideas to grow a digital community, we touched it all. Plus, if you think big retail is dead, tune in to hear Philip's interesting take on how that is anything but true, and how the D2C brands currently praised on Twitter are nothing in comparison to the private label revolution happening in places like Target and Walmart. Just check out the GMV if you don't believe us. This was such a fun interview, and I loved getting the chance to pick the brain of another smart, forward-thinking podcast host and e-commerce enthusiast. I hope you love it as much as I did. Really quick, I want to say thank you, thank you to our awesome sponsor, Salesforce Commerce Cloud. And I'm going to allow them to give you the inside scoop into some of the findings from their most recent State of Commerce report. Hi, this is John from Salesforce. Did you know that companies of all sizes and industries power their digital customer journeys with Commerce Cloud? Salesforce Commerce Cloud delivers B2B and B2C commerce, as well as order management around the globe. And with Commerce Cloud, you can engage with your customers anywhere and personalize interactions everywhere. Scale and innovate with ease and drive some serious growth for your business. And speaking of innovation, we recently surveyed nearly 1,400 commerce leaders and analyzed the consumer shopping and business buying behavior of more than 1 billion customers worldwide. And we uncovered emerging trends that will influence how companies can be successful and stay ahead in this ever-evolving landscape. To check out the trends we discovered, go to sfdc.co slash commerce insights. That's sfdc.co slash commerce insights, one word. Before we get started, I wanted to remind you to subscribe to our weekly e-commerce newsletter at mission.org slash upnextincommerce. It's amazing. It's great. You will learn a lot of good things. Go subscribe. Hello and welcome back to Up Next in Commerce. I'm your host, Stephanie Postles, CEO at mission.org. Today on the show, we have Philip Jackson, who currently serves as Chief Commerce Officer at RightPoint and the co-founder of Future Commerce. Philip, welcome to the show. Thank you, Stephanie. Uh, it's a pleasure to be here. And uh, for once, I'm off the hook and I'm not having to host my own podcast. I, I get to be on the other side of, of the table. This is uh, quite an honor. Thank you. Yeah. How does it feel? Whenever I get invited to shows, I'm like, oh, I don't know. I'm used to asking the questions. Like, I don't know how I feel about that. So <laughs> how does it feel for you? It, I, I'm be honest with you. I'm actually sweating a little bit. <laughs> I'm kind of nervous. I... <laughs> I don't know what to do with myself if I don't open with Welcome to Future Commerce, the podcast about cutting edge and extra. I've got a whole like, you know, pitter patter. Yep. Yep. Um, I love that. So, so yeah, I mean, that's a I'm vulnerable right now. Well, so vulnerable. That's what I want. <laughs> so I want to hear how you even got into the world of commerce, because everywhere you look, you're deep in that world. You can tell you love it. You can tell you're very knowledgeable. Tell me a bit of background of what even got you interested in this world. So I have I have some high minded responses to that. Um, the way I got started was I accepted a job at a startup uh, in 2005, which was doing B2B online e-commerce. Uh, and they, you know, they were in like the web to print space. Everybody was doing that at the time. Snapfish was uh, increasingly popular um, and they were, you know, trying to break into B2B. 
you know, I was a developer and I found that that was like a really interesting little niche uh, to be involved in. And believe it or not, South Florida is actually kind of a hotbed for startup activity. Uh, doesn't get enough uh, credibility, but especially in wellness, there's a lot of wellness uh, that uh, came out of South Florida and especially digitally native brands in uh, the early aughts. Um, so you have like Vitacost and Garden of Life and a bunch of others. And um, and they were cutting their teeth in e-commerce, you know, before anybody else was. I, I say like wellness brands are like the new pornographers. They, they like increasingly, um, they try everything. They're, they're very uh, uh, rapid adopters of any kind of technology. And like the stack that you deploy today, the playbook you put into the direct-to-consumer playbook was something that I was building in businesses back in 2007, 2008, back when we had to build everything from scratch. And that's sort of how I got started. And then, you know, we had like the platform revolution where the platform sort of solved all those problems where e-commerce was custom software for the longest time. And, uh, and that's sort of how I came uh, up into it. I realized along the way, just to answer your actual question, that there's something really unique about commerce. We cannot live in this world without engaging in commerce. Commerce is a unifying power. It brings people of all income uh, uh, strata together. It brings people of all backgrounds together. You cannot live and participate in this world in any way without engaging in commerce. And so if that's true, and I believe that to be true, then commerce also has an incredible power to, to change the world um, because it touches everything. And so I really feel like if... If we take a step back, the way that we engage in commerce as merchants and the ecosystem that's around merchants and the technology that powers uh, the way that we market and the way that we deliver products to customers and the way that we retain and, and, and nurture those relationships is actually one of the most important forces that we have in this world to, uh, to do good or to do harm. And so that's, that's, what, that's what got me interested is like, there's a big problem to solve for here. It's not just about buying stuff. It's about how we it's about how we can exert a force for good on the world. And and yeah, and so I'm doing that in a bunch of different ways today. I love that. So tell us a bit about some of the different ways that you're engaging that arena. On one hand, there's sort of the right now of e-commerce. And the right now of e-commerce is uh, a lot of things are changing. Uh, we, you know, we're coming through an era where more brands are trying to go direct uh, than ever before. They want to implement platforms and software to, to do that. Uh, so, you know, big global CPG companies need uh, guidance there and they, they don't want to take risks unnecessarily. They want some certainty around the way that they go to market there. And they're looking for partners to do that. So through Right Point Commerce, um, you know, I'm helping to, uh, you know, create offerings and, and lead solutions and strategy for those kinds of brands, the big global, it's, you know, the chocolate and water companies of the world um, who, <laughs> who uh, are trying to go direct. And that's not to say that there aren't companies doing other things, but, you know, that's, that's a good portion of what we do. So that's what's happening right now. I, I also have, it gives me a strategic vantage point where you, you know, I see the RFPs of like, who's going to be spending money on what in the next two to five years and sort of kind of think about where the, the market's going. But I think that there's, then there's sort of what happens after that. And that's really what future commerce is all about. Uh, my co-founder and I, Brian Lang are, you know, sort of accidentally founded a media startup. Um, <laughs> I love that. Uh, as one does, um, where, you know, we, we, we accidentally, you know, we created a podcast just to have these conversations uh, about what might be happening in the world of commerce and what, what's next in commerce. And we were really thinking out five or 10 years of like, where is the world going? How's technology powering it? And what are the 
you know, what does the next commerce experience sort of look like? And we kind of, we've told those stories over now five years. Um, we realized though, that uh, everybody has a different perspective on that and everyone has a different part to play in it. And, uh, and so we're at 260 some odd episodes of Future Commerce as a podcast. And these days we publish uh, media five days a week across, you know, a, a slew of properties. Wow. That's um, awesome. It's a lot of content. <laughs> so yeah, so it's, it's two, two sides of the world. And, and, you know, at the end of the day, it's sort of either delivering a service or telling a story that helps someone else to, to deliver on a promise. I love that. So when thinking about the crazy ideas around commerce right now, I mean, like you said, you got to see these big RFPs, you see what some brands are betting on, you can kind of see where things are headed. What are maybe some surprising trends that, you know, our audience maybe hasn't even heard about yet, or they should maybe be prepping for? It's hard to say that, you know, this audience probably hasn't heard about something because I think we're, we're all tuned into some of the same, you know, some of the same outlets. Uh, you've probably heard a ton about the metaverse recently, mm-hmm. which is, uh, you know, sort of makes me squint a little bit because it, it's what it's another market, you know, buzzword that doesn't mean much of anything. Uh, Metaverse actually touches three or four different uh, unique concepts. I think one is uh, there's certainly an element of digital identity and the importance of digital identity today. Digital community certainly has a part to play in that as well. Um, And digital communities in particular is kind of a pillar for creating a modern brand today. So I think that as those things uh, grow, they're all extremely siloed, right? So you you see a lot of direct-to-consumer brands say they have a community. Mm -hmm. What they have is a Slack or a Discord. Let's just be really honest, right? And um, I'm part of one of them. Uh, Tracksmith is a brand that I like love. Uh, I'm a runner. I spend too much money on running clothes. uh, And I shop at the with this brand called Tracksmith tells they tell amazing stories. Matt Taylor, uh, the founder, just a a really genuine person. And um, they have some of the best photography and you know, and their clothes are pretty good. Their Slack allows me to connect with other people. I don't idle and I don't live in it forever. I, I'm it's like I'm not I'm not there all day long every day. That community is incredibly siloed from other brand communities that I'm part of, and I think that the there is an evolution that's coming. And this is where everybody it gets very confusing about what metaverse means. There's an evolution coming in that there are things that brands are testing right now. If you look like Gucci and Fortnite. You know, mm-hmm. there's digital collectibles, uh, digital identity, digital wearables. Like there's all of these sorts of things that are siloed into their own respective little corners of the universe. And there are some technologies which everybody will probably collectively gag at when I say NFTs and, and crypto, which could, I don't, I don't know if they will, uh, which could allow for the, uh, the migration of these kinds of things to port from one universe to the next. Mm-hmm. So when you say metaverse, it's how does my identity in the Tracksmith community allow me to, to take you know, some, some, some portion of my identity at Tracksmith and the community I have there, and now bring that into another space. I would love to have Tracksmith running clothes on in Fortnite. Wouldn't that be freaking mm-hmm. cool? Um, but whether consumers want that or not is is a whole other thing. And I think we have a long, a long way to go and a big hill to climb there. But I think when you think about what metaverse means, it actually, there are things that we are doing today that I think pave the way for what the next iteration of commercial or commerce-centered activity could be. So we're thinking a lot about that. Some of that's fractional ownership. Some of that is uh, the concept of like the digital commons and like what we all owe to each other in digital spaces and like how we, you know, how we participate in online versus uh, offline and IRL behavior in the world. 
And yeah, I, so these are things that we think about and, you know, that's one, one thing we talk about on future commerce that I think is, um, you know, one of those, uh, real head turners. Oh, I love that. I mean, anyone who listens to this knows I'm very bullish on all things crypto. I always try and get my guests to talk about it. NFTs, I'm still trying to fully figure out. I can definitely see really good use cases. Um, I had on someone from a headphone company called Dome and they're doing these like interchangeable headphone covers with like brands like mm. work with Gucci and, you know, all these other brands and thinking like, okay, there could be a, you know, 10, like a, an amount of 10, like you just have 10 of these types of designs. You can put them as NFTs, download them and, you know, get them on your cover. I can see use cases, but it's hard for me to see a ton right now. And maybe it's because of the big hype and then it, you know, no one was talking about it and it's kind of back now. How are you thinking yeah. that e-commerce companies can think about using NFTs or like, where do you even see them being able to play with that outside of just designs and music files and things like that? So, I mean, the short answer is, I don't think we really know. Mm -hmm. I think we, 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 NBA Top Shot was certainly the consumer awareness, like inflection point around NFT. So that's our Pokemon Go moment. Yep. It's like, oh, we have this idea of what something could be. Unfortunately, it also kind of digs a little bit of a trench as to like, this is what it is. Mm -hmm. in, in, in like digital collectible is one thing. What I see happening with some of the launch of the new NFT projects is the way that they're gaining traction or the way that they're amassing an audience is by seeding some of their digital collectibles of like the first round of, uh, of new issuance of NFT tokens. They're seeding it to people who are already notable collectors in the space because you can just do that. Mm -hmm. If I wanna know who owns a CryptoPunk or a Bored Ape, I can do that. I can find out who that is today. I may not know who's behind it, but I know their I know their wallet address. I know who they are because they coalesce into communities. And what's really powerful here is imagine launching a podcast, Stephanie, where you can go to your most prolific consumers of podcasts and seed to them the most recent version of an episode. Mm -hmm. Like that is a thing that that today podcast discovery is only happening via really word of mouth. You can spend money on performance. You can try to do a bunch of organic SEO. You can try to hype it up on Twitter. Literally everybody has a podcast. Nobody cares. And you're not just competing with stuff that's being made today. You're competing with the totality of all information that's ever been made ever. And nobody has to be bored anymore. Mm -hmm. So the way that you get things into people's hands is really this like public exchange of like wallet and ownership. I think that there's something there around the way that these communities become very public in the way that they frequent and maybe even co-own brands in the future. Because part of NFTs is built on smart contracts and smart contracts are a part of the Ethereum network, which means, uh, which is also uh, uh, has a concept of these de decentralized uh, autonomous organizations. And these DAOs theoretically could group people that are like-minded into organizations that you could seed your next podcast to. So I do think that there there are use cases that exist outside of just like digital collectibles, but we're a decade away from really understanding if that's even possible or whether consumers are going to you know really want it. I do know it's, it's not an original thought, uh, but you know most most uh, technological innovation begins life by looking like a toy, yep. and so I, I think that Web three is is certainly going to look very different to Web two. I think it's already here, but it looks like a game because you know what. It literally is yeah. like most of these things are happening in gaming communities right now. Yeah, I'm continuing to watch them closely and also watching like how Cardano is kind of rising in popularity now. And like, what is that going to do to the NFT game? And at what point can you actually rely on other smart contracts? But I mean, the other interesting thing to think about is 
I'm imagining us looking back in 10 years at people buying emails and like, you know, going to emails that are just bad and buying phone numbers. And then, yeah, just thinking about like the amount of contacts people have that are usually bad ones. If it's just all associated with one address, like you said, knowing that when you have an email there, it's because someone wants you to have it. And there is no just sending things out in bulk or mailing things out, whatever it may be. It seems like it'll be mm-hmm. an interesting time looking back when it is very much a one-to-one relationship, which is what everyone wants. But like you said, the early days of how technology looks, it's either a game or it's so dang hard to use. I mean, I remember buying Bitcoin back in 2011 and it was such a weird process. I was like, I could be doing something illegal here, but I'm going to try it anyways. And congratulations on all your success, by the way, <laughs> Bitcoin in 2011. Thank you. Um, yeah. I mean, it was, it was actually a great story because I was working at Fannie Mae the chief economist there. And I said, Hey, I think we should look at this because there's so much money that's wasted on like checking titles and like land and all these things. And I'm like, if you could put this potential in the blockchain, like we should at least explore it because there's so much money wasted here. And he literally Mm -hmm. laughed at me. I was kind of like an intern and he essentially was like, you're crazy. That's a scam. And I was like, great. I'm going to go buy a couple of them now. Okay. We'll, we'll see. So <laughs> Yeah, that's, <laughs> that's, that's exactly the, all the confirmation I needed. Yep. <laughs> um, I, I agree with you. I, we have this actually talks uh, and not to cut you off, but I, I think that when we talk about the way we buy things, there's still a lot of innovation left to be had in web too, mm-hmm. uh, because we're, we're really, we struggle in building online I talk a lot about skeuomorphism and the way that we build digital experiences largely parrot the analog in real life versions. I'll give you a great example. For those who don't know what skeuomorphism is, just a primer, uh, it's the desktop metaphor. It's you have a desktop with files and folders and a recycling bin in your personal computer because that's what analog, you know, uh, workspaces looked like or maybe still look like. Um, The longer that we have digital adoption, the more those metaphors begin to break down because we don't need them anymore. Everybody understands now what an app is, right? If we think about the way that e-commerce has evolved, we have a very similar paradigm. We have categories which are virtual aisles and they, you know, they drive to uh, product information, which could be the box where, that your, your product comes in. Uh, and then we you know, put that in a cart and we take that to a virtual checkout where we pay. These are all, it's skeuomorphic. It's, it is an analog of the real world. Now we have one click purchase, which is like sort of the breaking down of the walls of that. What we don't have is online price clubs. And I see that there's, through the research that we've done at RightPoint, we just put out this uh, research piece called Seeking, sorry, Stocking Up and Seeking Out. And we found that currently, right now, there's two behavioral modes uh, that customers are engaging in, which are underserved by online e-commerce experiences. The first is there are, are customers with a certain sensibility in certain categories who are not being served in the stocking up buying modality. When I go to Costco, I am seeking, I'm I'm in search of a product that I already know and love and trust, and I just want a whole bunch of it. And that's my buying mode. It's typically the kinds of products you'll find at a Costco. It's it's your daily use, high frequency, uh, fast moving consumer goods. And they're generally made by large brands. It is not a subscription, which is what most e-commerce wants you to do. Mm-hmm. E-commerce builders today will build a subscription model and say, congratulations, customer, but it's self-serving because that serves the brand. It doesn't serve the customer. What the customer wants is maybe not to create so much waste in the world. Maybe they want to have a pantry full of uh, degree deodorant. Like That's just what they want. 
So I, I feel like that's that's very underserved. And what we find is that there's certain product categories wherein that presents to be true, beauty and wellness in particular. You, you see this expressed, um, my spouse, she has the same mascara for 20 mm-hmm. years and she cannot be convinced to yeah. change it. It works for her and she doesn't want to, you know, she, she's not going to muck it up. Uh, but she will actively, when she wants to buy a new black shirt, she'll buy from seven different brands and have a little home try on and then probably never return mm-hmm. any of them. Um, and so the way that we purchase is very different from category to category and and then even more different based on household income and uh, and stage of life. So and then there's the seeking out. And I feel like we're also very underserved in a lot of these um digitally native brands where we would be persuaded to want to shop from other like-minded brands. And you're seeing this sort of play out in post-purchase co-selling. And the seeking out behavior is I could be convinced to purchase from another brand that would be complimentary um, in a low-risk way, certainly if it was before the buy box or even after in in, in post-purchase. And you see some folks out there that are in the startup space that are are proving this out now with post-purchase upsell. Um, Co-op commerce is one of them. You know, and there, there are plenty of others that are, are trying to prove this out. I think in the next four to five years, we'll see a lot more direct-to-consumer brands transform more into marketplaces where they're co-selling, co-acquiring customers together. Mm-hmm. All that to say is that those, those are the same types of buying modalities that you see in NFTs and crypto too. There's people that are seeking out new projects and there's people that are doubling downs on, on the proven ones. There's no behavioral change from, from one version of the web to the next. I think it's, it's understanding how those buying dynamics are actually shaping how those communities form that will change in the next 10 years. There's a stereotype of the average American worker whose life goes something like this. Go to work, come home, consume some kind of entertainment, go to sleep, lather, rinse, repeat. If you're listening to this ad, then I know that that life does not resonate with you. For the truly disruptive business leader, work doesn't stay at the office and unwinding doesn't mean watching TV at night every single night. This is why we've created Mission Daily, a podcast that discusses the trends, habits, and ideas that thoughtful business people are contemplating every day. From quirky business opportunities to interesting investment ideas to the latest research in health and exercise and alternative medicine, and maybe even plant medicine, who knows where we're going to go, but Mission Daily covers it all. We're releasing new episodes every weekday. So join me, Stephanie Postles, and my co-host, Albert Chow, as we discuss the subjects, thoughts, and trends that business leaders think about, but don't talk about. Publicly, that is. Break the status quo. Tune into Mission Daily wherever you listen to your podcasts. See you there. I'm even thinking about this article now. I mean, when you're talking about these co-ops and brands all going together on marketplaces, I'm thinking about this great article, and it was all around like bundling and unbundling. And how for a while, everything was like getting unbundled, and you know, maybe one big product would turn into five. But now it seems like the reverse has to start happening because there's so many products that have launched over the past couple years. Discoverability seems really hard. You can go even on Amazon and there's like five of the same different types of tank tops. And I'm just, I'm like your wife. I'm like, ah, I'll try all five. I actually return though. Okay. I don't just sit on all five, <laughs> not normally. I'll connect the two of you. She, she could probably learn how to figure that out. <laughs> Step one, just return. But yeah, I mean, it just seems like there's a lot of room for that. But then, you know, you have seen these marketplaces popping up. And um, I mean, we've had a couple on the show, but I don't see a lot of them maybe fully taking off. And I don't know why I'm trying to think about like, why aren't people, maybe they're not ready yet to like go to a marketplace and buy because they're still kind of in this hype, excited phase of like, I just want to find the brands with the best stories and buy directly from their website or wherever it is. But I haven't seen the marketplaces doing what maybe I would think they should have done by now with all these new D2C companies. I believe that we have hard, hard coded and uh, ingrained defaults 
I'm of a prior era. I'm old. Uh, I'll just admit that right now. Um, I'm a zennial, not a zillennial, but a zennial. I'm, I'm like a cusper. Yeah, I'm a cusper. I was born in 1980. It was between you know the the Gen X and and millennial uh, eras. I grew up in a world that you know had MTV and then also AOL. Like I I was kind of between you know a you know, having a life that was like purely not digital and then, you know, a career that was purely digital. Um, so I remember what the world used to be like before. It's an, a really interesting challenge in that point of view is me trying to understand like the the modern customer journey um, because I think there's this hard-coded default of I grew up with Best mm-hmm. Buy. I grew up with Target. I grew up with Walmart. And I think there's a lot of people like me who grew up with physical retail manifestation. Mm -hmm. And those are the brands that you tend to reach for. In fact, they're all ones who have performed dramatic turnarounds in e-commerce in the last 10 years. And, uh, And so what I think we will collectively remember the direct to consumer era as having done is really create, uh, incredible platforms for big retail to have exceptional branding and to find product market fit with the consumer. There was a new pet food launch at Target, which you could have convinced me was like the new venture backed, uh, it's called Kindful, uh, new venture backed darling, you know, pet food brand. And, um, you know, there's, there's a, a, a private label revolution that's happening in all of these, whether they're acquired or created from within, both in, you know, Walmart and Target respectively, um, who each of them individually have GMV of those brands that far eclipse any of the direct-to-consumer darlings that we praise on Twitter mm-hmm. all day long. Uh, those brands, you know, barely, barely ever clear twenty or thirty million online, and wind up having to go omni-channel for them to be able to uh, to to grow and succeed. So physical retail um, and those de- those latent defaults that we have for physical shopping also then translate to mm-hmm. digital. And if you don't believe me, just go look at quarterly earnings and how much of it's coming from e-commerce uh, revenue shift for a Target or a Walmart and or or a Lowe's or Home Depot, and it proves the point. Customers who shop in real life uh, will shop digitally with in real life mm-hmm. brands, and I think that that's that's a thing that for us to succeed in e-commerce, we all have to just sort of recognize is that these this direct to consumer era is really proving out of a concept that there can be 150 brands in the same category uh, that a consumer is aware of and will frequent. The pie is growing bigger for everybody, but at the end of the day, like big retail is going to succeed and big retail will probably be the chief benefactor of that era. It definitely seems like a media issue too. Like you said, around a lot of these brands, kind of like the hype around being D2C and like, don't go on Amazon, don't do omni-channel. Like this is the way of the future. And I've always just thought like, well, why wouldn't you try? Like if you can get in a Nordstrom, you probably should because I'm still loving Nordstrom right now. I'm still going to go there. And if anything, now I'm seeing kind of a big shift and people kind of going back to what like where they were. I mean, I even read a whole thing on like yep. Austin right now of like people don't want to stay working from home. I mean, they thought they w- did. They did a whole survey. It's like people want to get back in the office. I know me especially, you know, three kids under four at the house. No, thank you. I had to get a different office. <laughs> get me out <laughs> yeah, of here. Like, help. SOS. Anyone hear me? So I just think that a lot of people are going to kind of go wow. back to where they were and pull back to the model like they want in person. They want events. They want to go shopping. And now there's just a new added way to do that and getting even better brands like within the targets and the Walmarts that, you know, they just weren't thinking that way before. Uh, I had a a founder on our future commerce podcast, you know, she operates this online, it's called bar and cocoa. It's a, uh, uh, an online fine chocolate, a retailer. She was talking about how we form 
preferences around things like chocolate before, uh, you know, at a very, very, very early age, you, you, you know, when you're quite young, you can eat chocolate and, um, the kind of chocolate you eat when you're young creates this, um, this preference for, and, and an understanding of what you think chocolate is or should be. And therefore it's like really hard to change your perception of what chocolate can be at a much earlier, a much later stage in life, unlike beer or wine uh, or coffee, which are all acquired tastes that come much, much later in life. But chocolate is a thing that you eat at mm-hmm. two, three, four, five years old. And I, I, when I talk to my kids about buying, my kids who are nine and 10, even though their dad is in, in e-commerce and we get an Amazon package every flipping day of the week on our doorstep. And I buy direct from, you know, two dozen plus brands. I already admitted my affinity for Tracksmith here. Um, like I, I buy from brands all the time. I get stuff in my mailbox and on my doorstep from every brand under the sun. My kids believe that shopping is something you go out of the house mm-hmm. to do. And I think that there's something that's really, really interesting about that as a thought experiment is that our, our defaults, our, our, our habits are formed and our preferences are formed around things like that at a much earlier age than I think we even realize they're spending money that is not theirs. They're spending my money. And that's the kind of thought that led us to create this uh, consumer persona at Future Commerce called Carly, uh, which is sort of a, a send up of Henry. You've probably heard of Henry, uh, which is high earner, not rich yet. Carly is can't afford real life yet. And uh, there is a, a tremendous amount of buying power that happens for you know, children that are you know, uh, under the age of 18 um, who spend lots of money and, and their social setting is in a place of retail. And maybe in the future, you know, in a metaverse context, my kids hang out in Roblox, right? There are purchase decisions that are being made around that. And I, I, I think that's going to be incredibly hard to disrupt so the the brick and mortar naysayers, uh, I think, are, are going to be in a little bit of a uh, in for a little bit of a surprise. And, and by the way, most of them also happen to be investors in direct to consumer brands. Yep. So consider we're the source, right? But that's you know that's our take, yeah. <laughs> and probably not a very controversial one to be not honest anymore. with you. With the numbers, maybe like a year ago yeah. it would have been, but maybe. Yeah, I mean, I I completely agree with all that. I'm even thinking about too. I mean how when these big brands are acquiring these D2C companies, it also helps with like the brand trust issue. I mean, you guys wrote this whole article on future commerce about how, you know, I want to trust the brand, like the Dr. Brahmers, like where the, it's got a huge label with a thousand things on it. And maybe two years ago, people would be like, oh, what is that? But now that's kind of like a source of trust, seeing those brands and be like, mm. they gave me so much information. They're like a small mom and pop brand. I mean, I'm doing air quotes because they're not today, but that also gives these big brands kind of a different kind of trust that maybe they didn't have, you know, a year or two ago, because you'd see, you know, labels where you're like, eh, I'd actually rather go for this small thing. And it's not a D2C world yet, but I'd rather choose that because it seems more trusting than a huge brand. So big benefits all around. Think about it this way, too. Uh, it, it aligns with a little bit of a maximalist aesthetic that's happening at the moment. That's a little bit Something I would have probably called like brutalist design, um, some, like something intentionally countercultural. Mm-hmm. You know, um, if if my co-founder Brian Ling were on here, he would be talking about Ben Schatz, you know, blanding uh, article and sort of this idea of uh, this homogenization of millennial aesthetic. The fact is, is that you know, like there will always be something that try. There, there will always be a. Uh, the need for visual design to like distinguish itself mm-hmm. to stand out from the pack and things come in cycles. So you look at these, at these brands like Dr. Bronner's or, or Miss Myers and, um, 
they didn't come in primary packaging like the label was the package mm-hmm. and from a from a prior era where you had to like cover a lot of ground purely on the label of like here's the use cases here's i mean just look at a box of uh, jiffy cornbread it's like it's got like the provenance of like where it came from it has like three recipes on it it, it covers a lot of ground yeah. and you know, we try to do that through content marketing and performance today and like UGC. And, and in reality, I think there's a lot to learn, a lot to learn from them in the way that they had to succinctly and well, maybe not so succinctly, like cram all of that onto a label. Yeah. Um, the maximalist thing, the, that maximalist aesthetic is a countercultural uh, reaction to the elegance of minimalism that has been happening in the millennial aesthetic over the many past few years. And what we we dubbed that at Future Commerce is like the new Dadaists. There's something to be said about like being intentionally absurdist yeah. in order to rise above the the conversation and to distinguish yourself. I, and I might be conflating a few. If We could have a long conversation as to why I'm conflating a bunch of different ideas. But just to give you a flavor of they're standouts for a reason and they're becoming trustworthy for a reason. And that's because they are markedly different from everything else that you are being fed at the moment. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, the, the pendulum is certainly swinging back. What are some examples of absurd marketing or labels or just companies you're watching where you're like, yep, that's the perfect example of that. Okay. Well, I, gosh, there's no shortage of absurdism. Um, you know, the one that everyone's going to hold up and certainly was, you know, uh, going to be hard to, uh, to not talk about in this context is mischief. You know, from a cultural touchstone with the little Nas X, you know, Satan Shoe, you know, they certainly uh, were able to create uh, a viral moment in the culture that, that garnered a lot of attention. But the fact is, is that it, like if I had to label a brand, if you want to call them a brand, as a like a true Dadaist, um, Dadaism, by the way, for those that aren't up to speed, uh, was an artistic movement. Um, with uh, folks like uh, Marcel Duchamp and some others that uh, sort of intentionally, uh, you know, made art that was provocative as a, a reaction against, you know, an otherwise, you know, sort of gatekept elegant art movement. Um, very famously, there was a piece, especially if you read the Wikipedia article about it, there's a piece uh, called Fountain, which was a urinal turned down its side. If you were to have used it, you probably would have urinated on yourself. And that is a, a an artistic expression of, you know, art is that art was absurd and to make a statement on it, using the medium uh, as a meta statement as uh, as the the moment that was happening in art at the time. Mm-hmm. I think Mischief does that quite well uh, in that they're using the medium of products and brand to make a statement on the current state of products and brand. And Gabriel Whaley is the founder there, um, is, I would say, a, a true Dadaist. When you think about just maximalism in general or a... Um, you know, absurdism in general. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I mean, KFC certainly comes to mind. Um, absurdism as, you know, a means of attention grabbing. They had a uh, a short run web series uh, with uh, Mario Lopez uh, as like a heartthrob version of Colonel Sanders last oh, year. I think I remember this. Yeah. You can pretty much count on KFC doing something over the top every, uh, every month or so. Mm-hmm. There was a... a, a <laughs> a gaming PC that they put out with a chicken strips warmer uh, tray in the bottom. You know, there's there's a, a movement on Twitter, uh, a few folks um, who are sort of famous for it in the VC space, like a- Alex Cohen, uh, Trung Fan, 
uh, Turner Novak, who literally everything they say is absurd and is is cannot be taken seriously. And that's part of their brand. Mm -hmm. If they were to post in earnest or if they were to be sincere, no one would believe them because that is core to their brand and who they've created a, a personal identity around. You're not going to see Mrs. Myers try to be absurdist yeah. because no one would believe it. It, it would come off as as being it, it. It just wouldn't be believable. Like you have to almost create mm -hmm. an entire universe wherein your brand exists to be absurd, yeah. and that is actually quite interesting right now because you, you you know you're seeing it everywhere from fast food to product startups to even you know CBD brands. Mm -hmm. I, I think it's it's going to be really interesting to watch that play out. But you have to kind of world build. And again, like it's not just brands. And I think that's the thing that we're trying to to not talk about. It's not just about those trying to sell products to you. I think this is actually a, a cultural expression. There is a Facebook group I got invited to, Stephanie, that was uh, people that were just pretending like they're part of an ant colony. That's, <laughs> Can I join? It's, it's, Sounds epic. <laughs> yeah, you should. It's 2 million people who, you know, they'll post a picture of a Tootsie Pop and be like, lick and, you know, <laughs> let's carry it back to the queen. And, oh my God. you know, this why is did you, just... First, why did you get invited to this? Like, how did they know? Like, we really need to have Philip in the club. I need new friends. That's why. <laughs> <laughs> I have some strange friends. Um, but I, I think it's just happening on every every level. I mean, certainly, you know, even I would say like sort of the, the revival of Crocs, mm -hmm. um, even, you know, some folks are trying to bring Jinko jeans back. I think all of it is just you know, how can we revolt against what's happening now and what is, you know, mainstream now in a way that, you know, visually and maybe even spiritually distinguishes us from everybody else? Yep. Um, it's not just a branding thing. I think it's, you know, it's just a natural reaction of people in the culture. So when you're at right point, do you have big brands coming to you bringing, you know, saying like, I want to be absurd. I want to do, you know, crazy things. Absolutely not. <laughs> no. <laughs> okay. They're like, I no. don't want to do anything outside the box. And then you're telling them to be absurd. Like, what does that look like, you know, when you're consulting with them? It's not, the conversation isn't how do we be more absurd? I think the conversation is definitely how do we set ourselves apart? Mm -hmm. And the setting yourself apart is really a conversation about risk tolerance. It's, uh, we have to adopt, especially for those historical brands, big, you know, big, beloved global mm -hmm. uh, conglomerates, it's their first foray into e-commerce. And e-commerce is a channel wherein everything is incredibly measurable, mm -hmm. I should say. Um, every single thing that you do can be quantified. And because everything can be quantified, we can measure and prove out hypotheses. The problem is, is that, you know, other parts of the business maybe aren't so quantifiable. And you have to adopt the mentality of uh, a product management philosophy to operate e-commerce well. And you have to be willing to fail sometimes to learn. And that's what the, that's the struggle here. That's where disruptor brands have the advantage is that the early movers and disruptors have zero fear of failure. Mm -hmm. They have to, they, like they're willing to take big swings and big risks. And that's why so much of e-commerce, especially at the, at the sort of global brand level is so is so boring is because they're not willing to take risks and and make big swings and and learn from failure. So they're not coming to me saying how can we be absurd, but I am certainly going to them and saying how can we take bigger risks? How can we you know fail faster and um uh, and try to do things a little bit differently or to do things uh, that that don't scale mm -hmm. in order to try to prove whether we should be put, putting an investment into it. They're all trying to figure out what a five year plan is and not a five month plan is, and unfortunately. A lot changes in five years. Think about where yeah. we were in five, yep. uh, you know, five years ago in e-commerce. I don't trust five-year plans. Even 
<laughs> no, you shouldn't. Not even just a three-year plan garbage. or a one-year plan. Like, tell me what you're going to do in even three Even a one-year plan. <laughs> I do think th- I do think some things need to be five year plans. I- I'll give you a good example uh, without mentioning the client. You know, there's there are global brands here today who uh, are actually quite invested in e-commerce, but the way that they've gone about it is to license their e-commerce work out to you know partners all over the globe. And if you are that kind of a brand and you're you know thinking about what the future of your e-commerce growth looks like. Uh, maybe your plan is to bring all of that back in-house under a merchant of record, you know, program. Mm-hmm. And that means you need to hire and build an organization and you need to have, you know, some strategy and you need to execute that, you know, from end to end. It's not just about customer experience. It's also about order to cash and, and, um, and accounting and, you know, how do we fulfill and like, what's, you know, cold, you know, cold storage. And like, it's, it becomes like an incredibly complex program. And you've never been a merchant before, mm-hmm. ever. And you, you know, you think, oh, we're just going to turn on e-commerce. Well, you've had a partner running your e-commerce, you know, uh, in in every different region, twenty four partners all over the world who have been doing that for you for years, and you're just starting. So, you know, some 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 things can't move so fast. Yeah. The problem is, is that like the evolution of that brand uh, or the the products in that brand at the brand management level is changing so so quickly every day and um and and by the way if you've worked with those folks and I'm sure you have uh there's a whole lot of thinkers and visionaries and very few doers and we really are struggle struggling in e-commerce especially with all the growth recently in like staffing projects like there's so little hands to actually do work mm-hmm. and that's a just that's going to be a, a a big challenge, especially coming into Q4 and next year, we don't have enough people to handle the amount of uh, demand that we're having in, in digital commerce right now. And that's across the board. It's, it's marketers, it's copywriters, it's, uh, it's, it's everybody. It's, you know, logistics and supply chain, it's developers, it's everybody. And, you know, I think that that will severely hinder our ability to really, um, to be able to move, you know, at the speed that the consumer wants you to move. That's going to be a harder challenge to solve for. And I think it's going to require a whole lot of cross-disciplinary and career shift um, in our industry. And like, wouldn't it be amazing if we had more humorists and comedy writers and and, uh, and people who are adept communicators in other ways, like moving to e-commerce to help us like tick up CX to the next level. So it's not just install this tool and, you know, set off. We really need more of the creative type. I mean, that is, I always do think there's pockets of people and we just don't, can't see how they relate or we can't get to them. So like, they're all out there. They just might not mm. be in your industry. And like you said, like, what if you- So could, I'm going to ask you, huh? I, I have to turn this, so I have to turn this around <laughs> because um, I have a thought, yeah. uh, which is there's the the sort of like up next in commerce, there's future commerce. There's like a lot of places where you could spend your attention in like, retail trade media mm-hmm. or business focused media how how would you s- characterize trying to you know activate someone into listening to podcasts or uh, consuming business focused content who isn't prone to do so already mm-hmm. is that something that's on your mind like how do you do that yeah i mean i think one thinking about building out that network so we have a network of you know 17 shows and i think being able to like bring people in in different ways is a great place to start because you know, you have a lot of shows, but also similar people writing them. And we have, you know, a very nice network of guests that we can bring on. So I think right there, you can kind of bring people on, even if they wouldn't maybe always think about listening to a commerce show. And they were at the, our marketing trend show, for instance, still pretty similar. They just might not have thought to go there. 
I mean, I think that's one way that we're thinking about it. And then, I mean, the other way is social is always helpful. I think discoverability can be great there if you lean into that big. We haven't always because we go after for a lot of our shows like executives, you know, we're bringing on CMOs and CTOs and CIOs. And so we're going after people who want to hear from them and learn from them. So it's a little bit different. Not every, you know, not a lot of executives are always on Instagram per se. So we just have to think about Mm -hmm. the social strategy a bit different. And then, I mean, ads are still a big thing, like you mentioned early on. That's still the best way for us. But we've also built up our entire own ad network to even do that. I'm not, you know, we never do traditional ads anymore. We don't do Facebook ads and Google ads. It's too expensive. You can't even get to the people that you want. So we just end mm-hmm. up building our own thing. So I, I think that's kind of the way of the future. That was like building your own thing for whoever you want to get in front of to be able to find your audience, find your people, connect with them in different ways. And then I still think events are a big thing. I think they're going to come back really strong and people get to really see, you know, your personality and interact and do some wine mm-hmm. tastings. And we've had huge success with doing events and recording them. And I'm bullish on that coming back, even though things feel crazy right now, still bullish on that. All of those answers, I think you have direct parallels to uh, trying to acquire an e-commerce, mm-hmm. digital commerce customer. Yeah. And it's the same It's the same challenge. Like there is a, I think, a fixed pool of people that listen to podcasts and specifically like business media. Mm-hmm. And we all share that from that pool. It's not a growing pool, I don't believe, yeah. not after eight years of doing podcasts. And so my challenge that I've lev- like leveled to our team is how do we create the next the next generation of a prolific trade media consumer, mm-hmm. because no one's trying to create that listener. They're all just trying to get more attention from the same pool. Yeah. And and I feel like that's the same challenge that we have in e-commerce is how do we create a digital commerce customer? How do we create someone who is not prone to buy online, who needs an externality like a COVID yeah. to actually be, you know, they have their hand forced to be able to dabble in it. How do we take that same sort of, they're the same challenge. They're different expressions of it, but it's the same challenge. And um, maybe going back to the basics, I mean, that's also what I think about is like, how can you go back to the basics of when thinking about podcasting? Okay, radio is still huge. So how do you get yourself syndicated on radio? Like that's something we're currently working on right now, because a lot of people still listen, you know, people say radio is dead, it's for sure not. So like maybe going there, same thing with e commerce, why not think about going the, you know, mail stuff to people's homes? Everyone's home now, everyone's working from home, like get back to the basics of maybe what was popular, because I can see a lot of that coming back right now. And then also, you know, focusing on the big new things, you know, the Fortnites, Clubhouse, I think. Sure. I don't think that's really cool anymore. I'm not sure. I don't know if that's cool anymore. It's not cool in my book, but (laughs) whoever's on there, I'm very sorry. But yeah, finding... I was super excited about it for a minute. Yeah, I was for a minute as well. And then I was like, and I'm out. But I think there are some platforms that are always fun to experiment on and, you know, kind of just imagine like, what could it look like if you were to bring your brand there? And yeah, I do think the VR aspect of that could be very cool. If you can, you know, operate not only as a brand, but also a media company where people want to come interact with you, consume your content and possibly buy your stuff as well. Like you have to have that full, uh, a full experience. Yeah, I, I agree fully. This has been so good for me to not have to be in the host chair. I, I really have appreciated it. I will say this, like the thing you just said is, is I think sort of the, the key right now, which is you know, we as a, so we're building a media brand, you, you operate a media brand. Media has this opportunity to move more towards uh, commerce and commerce has this opportunity to move more toward retail. And I think give it a few years mm-hmm. and it's going to become really indistinguishable w- of what 
any brand is because they are they are seamlessly both media and retail. And we are well positioned right now to be at the intersection of both yeah. uh, because we are creating uh, we are creating the commerce experiences of the next five years right now, and we are talking about what those commerce experiences will look like in the future. And I think that that's you know a really exciting place to be in in the world at this exact moment. Yep, I agree. Well, Philip, this has been an awesome conversation. I'll definitely have to bring you back for round two or join your show. We'll find a way to hang out. But we'll do it. Yeah, where can people find out more about you and learn from all the cool work you're doing? Yeah, uh, futurecommerce.fm um, or anywhere where podcasts are found, Future Commerce, and uh, subscribe to The Senses, which is our weekly uh, newsletter, and Insiders, uh, which is you know my very long form essay I put out every week deep dive and uh hey we um we would love to if you're looking to build uh one of those commerce experiences you know that uh, are a bit absurd maybe question mark we don't know um <laughs> then uh yeah visit us over at rightpoint.com and uh, i'd love to have a conversation about cx and commerce with you amazing thanks so much thank you so much everyone. I hope you enjoyed this episode. If you did, you'll probably also love our e-commerce newsletter. To get it delivered straight to your inbox every week, sign up at mission.org slash upnext in commerce. Thank you for checking out another epic hour of business insights and inspiration on the Upnext in Commerce podcast. If you like what you've heard and you're interested in partnering with us to bring your brand to a growing audience of e-commerce experts, reach out to me at stephanie at mission.org to get the conversation started.